not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time dealing. Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. I'm Hans Lander, and today I'm joined by two very fine gentlemen, uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Hey. And Mr. Nick Mason. Hey. So today we have... Uh, a really peculiar topic that I think a lot of our audience um, has probably heard about for a lot of years and doesn't really quite understand. Uh, more broadly, we're talking about the military-industrial complex inside the United States. Um, and specifically within that, we're talking about a very peculiar company, Lockheed Martin, and a branch of Lockheed Martin that is sort of infamous around the world for having contributed to um, what many claim to be sort of the third industrial revolution in the United States, or the, the post-war industrial revolution. Uh, that would be Skunk Works. Skunk Works today, I think, is seen mostly as sort of a, a do-it-all. Uh, there was a story, maybe about six months ago, that Skunk Works had patented nuclear fusion technology. Um, but if you consider the history of Skunk Works, this is sort of uh, this is sort of strange, and, and we'll get into that. We're talking about uh, ostensibly an, a business empire focused predominantly on aerospace. What most people seem to regard Lockheed as is a, is a product of the Second World War. That in the wake of the Second World War, uh, the Lockheed Corporation. Um, which had, up to that point, been um, deeply ingrained with people like Robert Gross, uh, deeply ingrained with the Hearst family, and deeply ingrained with um, sort of the, the post-Henry Ford, Ford Corporation and General Motors, uh, as sort of a, a, a way of producing large amounts of very peculiar aircraft for very specific purposes. Um, either in mass production models or in quick turnaround models. Lockheed uh, really gets its start much earlier than that and has been a part of what we would call the military-industrial complex for much longer than that. Uh, hopefully we can sort of elucidate today, you know, through the history of Lockheed Martin, why the military-industrial complex is not necessarily a product of World War II, um, but in many ways is the reason why World War II was fought, and uh, predates that war by probably 20 years or so. And obviously predates the, the infamous Eisenhower broadcasts on uh, the defense industry by about 30 years. So, you know, before we get started, what do you, you know, when you guys hear Lockheed Martin, or when you hear Skunk Works, what do you think? Well, I've, I've always been a, a big aerospace buff. I associate the company with military contracting, and in particular, 
they're very bespoke, as you mentioned, uh, aircraft that basically are not necessarily top of the class in terms of fighting capabilities, but they always have a particular niche that they're fulfilling, uh, as I'm sure we're going to get into the details uh, later on. But some of the most iconic aircraft, I think, of the 20th century come from Lockheed. And uh, there was it was no accident that uh, I chose the avatar for the myth of the 20th century on Twitter and various places as the uh, cockpit view of the pilot flying the SR-71, which to this day is still the fastest uh, operational military craft in history. And that was produced by Skunk Works. Yeah, the SR-71 was never even fully benchmarked. No one one actually knows how fast the SR-71 can go and how well its frame can hold up. It was never fully benchmarked, especially in its heyday, right after it was introduced. They they were trying to push it to the limits constantly, and Adam, you probably know this, but the way you would even start up in SR seventy one was insane. You would have you have like a, a, a wouldn't it a, have to be dropped? No, 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 you had to have like a mini electrical grid just to power up the engines, and there would be all of this um, uh, uh, cold fuel that they would constantly have to pump into the aircraft as it's warming up. So as the engines are warming up, it's burning fuel. It's not even ready to fly yet. And when it would actually uh, start to fly, you would, uh, you know, a lot of the engineers who would, who would work on it would describe there was this like almost like a vacuum of sound for a second, where all the sound nearby would sort of shift out, and all of a sudden these engines would roar in, and this aircraft would shoot down the runway faster than anyone could imagine it would take off and you know when pilots have described being inside the sr-71 obviously you're you're basically uh at almost in low earth orbit you're almost in low earth orbit yeah oh, it's incredible if you see the footage of some of this stuff or at least the still photographs you can see the curvature of the earth yeah you know and all these flat earthers out there they're like oh you know that's that's bullshit well you know there's a preponderance of evidence out there. I'm sorry at this point. And I've also flown over both oceans, the major oceans uh, that are on the United States. And I got to the same place going different directions. And so it's like, look, dude, um, we have technology that can do this. And, and we were doing this in the 1960s. It, deserve credit for it. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the craziest things about the SR 71 is that is in the 1960s, we were flying at what Mach five in almost low Earth orbit. Uh, Mach five is technically hypersonic, so I don't think it was that fast. But um, it was well, you know, I actually don't know the the translation off the top of my head. I think speed of sound is what seven hundred miles per hour. Um, but that's that's one that's the that's the increment that is one Mach, and so. If you multiply that by five, so, you know, yeah, here's that's where the I was, speed. But SR-71 did about 3,000 miles per hour, I think. So here's, I had this wrong in my notes. So if you round up, it's Mach 5. But technically, it was, it was Mach 4.788. That was the highest clocked speed for the SR-71. And yeah. you know, there, there's all these stories about how the Soviets would actually pick up the SR-71. And they knew what it was. They knew they knew what this this blackbird was, right? Um, 
but they, it was so difficult for them to shoot it down. And in fact, they, they couldn't, they, they couldn't, never they did. Couldn't. They, they, they couldn't. And, um, there was this game if you, and you know, we're, we're citing a few books we're jumping into this very quickly, but you know, let it, let us. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to go into some of the earlier stuff. Right, that right. Skunk Works. But you know, this is this is probably the most iconic aircraft that I can right. think of that they did. And we'll and we'll include right here like the manufacturing line um, for the SR seventy one. It's incredible. It's sort of like the peak of modern American manufacturing, and it, it's uh, it almost brings um, yeah a sense of nostalgia to you immediately. Like wow. It's just in terms of like, you know, this is what actually the United States used to produce. I mean, this is what the best and brightest people were working on. And you compare it to, and there was a a, a Facebook uh, sort of parody of this, but he was like, he showed kind of this soy boy incel type guy. Well, it wasn't an incel, but he basically was this kind of beta boy guy working in Silicon Valley. Um, staring awkwardly into the camera, and he says, "Boy, I can't wait to finish coding my dick pic app in Cupertino, <laughs> California, to go home and get henpecked by my Asian girlfriend, if I remember correctly." But it was effectively demonstrating, like, this is what talent, quote unquote, is working on in Silicon Valley, which used to be uh, a home. I mean, if you watch the James Bond mo- movie, uh, View to View to a Kill. Uh, the whole theory was that James Bond villain was going to destroy the San Francisco Bay Area to knock out the capability of the U.S. military to produce uh, its electronics. And, you know, if you know anything about how this stuff works today, I mean, none of that stuff is made there anymore. It's basically just design shit, uh, you know, an Apple, and then it's made in China. And that's pretty much true for everything else, too. So, uh, but this was all done in the United States. I mean, people are like, yeah. oh, you know, we need to bring in a- Asian and <laughs> Indians and Chinese because we, we're not smart enough. No, uh, actually, uh, the people who invented this stuff and the people who did it for years until people on Wall Street decided to be cheaper to move the factories, uh, they're very capable of doing it. And they invented the fucking shit. So, so you know, I'm very proud of that stuff. And, and uh, it's, it's Yeah, I mean, way. if you ever look... <laughs> There's plenty of photos of like guys who work at skunk, who who worked at Skunk Works in the heyday. <laughs> There's no H1B visas there. I got to tell you, most of them were like um, uh, native Californians, were machinists and engineers and, and sort of and design guys, yeah, and um, a lot from the Midwest. And a lot from the Midwest. And you just like from. yeah, I mean the history of American aerospace is really the history of like Midwesterners trying to learn how to fly. Um, but generally, you know, uh, Kelly, the man who sort of led Skunk Works and built it from the ground up, handpicked all these guys. He handpicked them, and it was not it was not like bringing in visas. You know, this is this is these are the days when, um, first of all. Your work spoke for you. The quality of your work and the projects you could say you had worked on and your intuition, not just you know your raw skill, but your intuition. Some of these aerospace machinists that you know, he brought on, and these guys would be responsible for building these, um, actually building these experimental aircraft. At the very least, building models, but often building the actual aircraft. Like the SR seventy one was built by guys who were hand picked by Kelly, and these guys, uh, you know, spent years and years and years of their life honing their skill and trying to learn everything they could 
about aerospace and everything they could about everything, about metallurgy, about electrical engineering, about uh, temperature fluctuations, about basic See, and, and that's the difference, again, right. I, I get on my soapbox again, but and the Germans and the Japanese, to a certain degree, even still understand this way better than anybody in America, at least in the financial sector of America. Um, the people at Porsche, for example, they will tell you that they understand one of the, the core competencies of their company is having manufacturing, design, and engineering all in one roof under the same building because yeah, those we, people we understand each other they collaborate much more effectively uh and they produce integrated systems that work uh and that's the whole philosophy behind apple even though they've outsourced so much of their manufacturing that was the original idea uh the difference between that and what america has turned into is it's basically it's a it's a spreadsheet driven decision-making process where they look at the lowest costs and they shop it out. And if you look at what happened to Boeing, another big aerospace giant, and if you look at what happened to Airbus when they spread out their supply chains all over the world, they fucked things up. And it, it just, it, it ruins things. And you can't see this and predict it on a spreadsheet because you assume the, the best and everything's going to work perfectly. And there's never going to be a, a hiccup or a misunderstanding. But I tell you, if you work in anything that is complicated and you have a spread out supply chain like this, when you're involving really intricate pieces of machinery going together and electrical systems, mechanical systems, propulsion systems, fuel systems, whatnot, uh, you can't do it correctly if it's all over the place and right. this is another difference uh, between that and skunkworks skunkworks was basically you leave us alone lockheed management guys who have to you know file quarterly reports you let me do what i need to do because i'm way smarter than you and i'm going to pick people who are way smarter than you uh to do the job right and get out of my face and if you look at the principles of kelly's uh or johnson's that's his last name uh johnson's management style that it's basically like just get the hell out of my face so I can do my work. Uh, that's, that's kind of the main impression that I got. And they, they knew he was a genius and they gave him the budget. And so, you know, it's really hard for most people to be able to pull this off, but he had the track record and it, he had, he had the, the proof, you know, to demonstrate that this, this method can work. Right. I mean, one last point on the SR 71, um, to, to give you an impression of, uh, sort of the organizational cohesion that comes out of a thing like Skunk Works. Uh, in order to actually manufacture the SR-71, they had to, first of all, pioneer stealth technology. Stealth technology uh, wasn't really a thing uh, up to that point. There were some ideas about how to do it. The Soviets had been working on it. Um, the, or some of the Europeans have been working on it, but no one had a lot of success and how to effectively build stealth aircraft. And so you know, you think of them. Um, well, the SR-71 was not technically stealth from what I know. It wasn't, it wasn't technically stealth, but it sort of gets around. It almost is, is stealth. So um, it didn't have a low radar cross-section. So it's not like uh, a, a, another Lockheed Martin product, um, another Skunk Works product, uh, the F-22 Raptor. Which, uh, in the F-117, which is the original. Right, right. And, and bo both of those, I mean, um, they, they basically don't even have a presence on the radar because of the, the alloys utilized and the, the, the coating on the skin of... And, and the angle of yeah, the, right. the airframe. That's the main thing. So, so Lockheed came up with this, um, this idea 
uh, or Skunk Works really came up with this idea. Uh, and it was a mix of uh, metallurgy. It was a mix of uh, clever geometric design. And it was obviously some of the best rocket engineers who had ever lived who wanted to make up for this thing's kind of pseudo-stealth with just incredible speed and durability. Um, so they they created this sort of titanium... Uh, it, was, it was like an alloy of titanium, titanium alloy. It was corrugated skin on top. And most of the body of the aircraft, if you actually look at it, has this very peculiar geometric shape that reduces radar cross-section as much as it can, obviously makes it more aerodynamic, um, but it reduces the ability for radar to actually pick it up properly. The Soviets eventually learned how to pick it up. They couldn't do anything, um, but it was very difficult off the bat, and radar up to that point wasn't really utilized to sense aircraft that uh, had this sort of shape. Um, and about 85% of the structure was this new titanium alloy. Now, no one up to this point had used titanium in this way for aircraft. No one. The only reason Lockheed figured it out is because under the same roof, they had theoretical physicists, they had metallurgists, they had machinists, electrical engineers, and just raw aerospace design guys who could sit down in a room five days a week and crack this out and say, Here's the problem with this. Here's the problem with this issue. Here's how we solve it. And these, this is sort of um, you know, the new era. Lockheed really uh, incidentally invents this new era in sort of what you call like integrated systems management almost. And uh, you achieve all of these amazing economies of scale. If you, if you, this is the academic standpoint. You achieve all these amazing economies of scale if you're able to keep all this house, if you're able to build these cohesive products, if you're able to build these cohesive technologies that actually function properly together. Um, you know, now we actually see this with the lot, the F-35 project, which I don't know why the, why Skunk Works would even attach their name to it. Um, but the F-35 isn't even done to wholly under the roof of Lockheed anymore. It's not even just Lockheed that, that works that's on for, it. That's for political and business reasons, right. arguably, not and, for engineering and, and reasons. And people, people are shocked when it, you know, it's a barely functioning aircraft. And it has a, a litany of continuous problems. Yeah, yeah, it's just too complicated. Um, I, I had one more thing to say on SR-71, and then I think we should go a little more chronologically because there is um, there's a few things that I think we should talk about before we kind of just go in various directions but did you want to continue on the blackbird or what did you want to do um, well we can just we can kind of jump back to the general history of a lot of this sure yeah, yeah I just wanted to, to point out uh, one thing about the uh, the aircraft's design that is kind of interesting if you're into into engines and trying to make things performant and kind of push the envelope. That's kind of the sort of, I think probably where this term really comes from is really aerospace. Uh, the engines are, are sort of these hybrid propulsion devices and they, they utilize, they're both, they're both co internal combustion driven. So they're not rocket um, engines. They're basically, uh, they have fans integrated into them like modern 
uh, air, aircraft do. If you get on a get on a flight, you're basically going to be flying on a on a plane that has turbofan jets made by General Electric, Pratt and Whitney, Rolls Royce. Those are the major manufacturers. And in this case, Pratt and Whitney actually designed these for Lockheed. And that's actually a typical thing that is done uh, that maybe a lot of people don't know uh, for aerospace manufacturers is that they actually don't build the engines typically. They're purchased from specialists. Uh, but in this case, it was Pratt and Whitney uh, who designed the the main engines for the 747 also, for example. Uh, and what they kind of came up with because of the design requirements was that the thing was needing to get off the ground, obviously. It's not a spaceship, so it has to start from a standstill, lift off the ground, and then fly uh, typically from, I don't know where its home base is where I'm assuming in the continental U.S., but they would be refueled, and then they would, they would jet across Russia wherever their targets were. And in order to do this, you had to go at very high speeds, but to get off the ground, and this is where the design uh, cleverness came into effect, they had to incorporate two types of engines into one engine. And so when you're cruising at sort of subsonic speeds below the speed of sound, you are going to want to have a fan-driven system that compresses the air, and then it burns in the back and creates that jet propulsion system. But when you reach about Mach 1.5+, plus, you're going to want to actually bypass the fans themselves and then turn into something they call a ramjet, which you know is, is a little bit beyond my comprehension uh, as to how it really works. But effectively, you are going so fast that the air basically slams into the combustion chamber at kind of like the the pressure that you need that a fan would normally provide for you but you're already going so fast you don't need the fans anymore so if you had the fans in front of this combustion chamber the drag would be so much that you wouldn't get very good fuel economy and so you basically don't want that anymore well you already have that because you need to get off the ground you need to cruise uh, at a lower speed before you need to get over russia where your burn rate is going to go up and so when you need that final push, what they did was they designed these bypass systems that basically the air goes around the fans and then into the, the chamber and then they blast it out, which is pretty straightforward if you actually think about it, but it was apparently never done before. So that was one example of the type of engineering that was being done at this place, which I think is, is something that we've lost because we've, we've turned into basically an outsource economy. Um, so that's all I had to say about the SR-71. Keep in mind that it was only in 1903 that the Wright brothers launched their first, uh, you know, wooden frame aircraft, right? And, and when was the SR-71 designed? It was designed um, in the late 50s. It, it, yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't sure when they designed it, but it was first flown, I think, in 64, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. So basically, you know, 61 years we're flying little wooden aircraft to get a couple hundred feet off the ground. And then we are touching the edge of space with a peculiar titanium alloy framed aircraft that was manufactured with these very special um, uh, ketamanium tools. They had well, yeah. Okay, there, there are a lot of spooky aspects actually to this that I don't know if you guys want to go into depth on, but there are theories about where it was designed in Area 51 that <laughs> there, there are some, there are some uh, other uh, otherworldly technologies that have been actually incorporated into U.S. military tech, uh, so which I th I'd like to get into later. But. A, a lot of, but, you know, honestly, the SR-71, um, 
I don't, I don't, I'm not going to buy the alien thing for, for mostly this, this one reason. Most of the engineering principles and most of the metallurgical principles and most of the aerodynamic principles um, had already been pioneered uh, in World War II. A lot of them were still theoretical, um, but a lot of the general mathematical work, a lot of the theoretical work had already been accomplished. Everyone was kind of aware that the, you could do these things. It was a matter of investment. It was a matter of systems management, um, and, and it, it was a it was a matter of mechanics and mechan not just you know actual mechanics, but the mechanics of everyday production, the mechanics of everyday production of such a complex aircraft. Um, but everything that sort of you know all of these pieces had come into place. You can even say that you know the SR seventy one is possible because of the rise of Taylorism in the late 19th century and sort of, you know, real systems theory and systems management theory. I, I would fully, I mean, I, I, I really, I fully believe that uh, the SR-71 was done fully by humans and it was done by humans that, you know, a few years later went to the moon with very similar principles and a very, you know, very actually low tech when you really think about it and so we think of you know low tech in terms of the complexity of the technology um outside of the engines this is actually a relatively non-complex aircraft which is probably why it did so well it was very straightforward and it was just this very strong titanium frame that accomplished a very simple goal and the real difficulty came in, of course, the electrical engineering, uh, the reconnaissance equipment, and, of course, the engines. Well, let's talk about the purpose of this aircraft, and then we can talk about some of the earlier innovations that came out of Skunk Works. Uh, the reason this, this thing even existed was because they wanted, um, or the intelligence agencies in particular, the CIA, who was the customer of the oh, yeah, it, it was primarily. It was a CIA project. It was a whole, it was entire, I mean, if you read... Um, U.S. Air Force also had some access to it, but I think it was primarily CIA. Yeah, if you read, um, Prof, you know, Prophets of War, which is the, the William Hartung book, or um, Ben Rich's memoir of Skunk Works, they, you know, it's both of them say that it was wholly a CIA project, and so it was yeah, the, and the so U2. their their goal was gathering information, right. and their you know ostensible role in this case was to do it over Russia, and before the SR seventy one. Uh, the and before satellites, as you mentioned, which is basically what put the SR seventy one out of business. Uh, they were basically trying to get information out of the Soviet Union, and they couldn't do it. And so Lockheed and Kelly Johnson, in particular, was tasked with coming up with an aircraft that could get them the intel that they needed. And what they came up with was, I'm sure you know, Hans, um, the U two uh, spy plane. So I think we should maybe talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the U-2 um, was really a, a combination of the CIA and Eisenhower. Uh, both of them uh, approached Lockheed Martin and realized that they needed the ability to determine what exactly was going on inside the Soviet Union. Um, to give you a little bit of context, the, the American um, spy network inside the Soviet Union had collapsed. It collapsed. 
Um, the American government was rife, still rife, with traitors. Um, you know, no one could really understand what was going on. And the big um, military question, especially for Eisenhower, was how many ICBMs do they have? Or how many missiles do they have? How many nuclear weapons do they have? What exactly has been produced? I have no way of knowing. Because all the intelligence we're getting, and the estimates I'm getting, says that they have over 100. That they've totally outmatched us. We have no way of winning a nuclear conflict with them. So the U-2 was originally developed um, by Skunk Works uh, to basically fly a giant camera over the Soviet Union. Um, and up to this point, there had been several of these attempts at reconnaissance, like weather balloons was, was one of the, you know, the infamous kind of CIA line about, oh, you witnessed a weather balloon. Um, well, the, you know, the CIA was actually flying weather balloons over the Soviet Union with cameras mounted on them. And it was this really bizarre method of, well, they'd, they'd send it off somewhere in Germany, or they'd send it off somewhere in Austria. And it would just float across the Soviet heartland. And then they'd pick it up in the Pacific Sea at some point. Uh, fun, fun fact, all those little birthday balloons that you see floating by occasionally, um, people don't know those are spy balloons. <laughs> and, um, you know, U.S. intelligence was like, these things are worthless. We almost get nothing out of them. We have no way of seeing what's going on. So the U-2 is developed. Um, and Adam, I don't know if you want to go into like the, the basic engineering of the U-2, but it was... It's kind of a yeah. Almost, it was um, almost uh, unbelievable that what they were able to accomplish uh, in such a short well, amount of can, time. Okay, so the typical cruising altitude is what thirty thousand feet for a commercial airliner, right? Right. So this thing, um, it could do I think double that because it was cruising at thirteen miles. So, so whatever thirteen times five thousand is, I guess that's even more. So. Um, yeah, maybe around seventy thousand, something like that. Uh, it it basically was so high that the Soviet interceptors couldn't couldn't get up there. That was the reason uh, it was flying at that altitude. And it, it is a really uh, spindly looking plane, and it's got these huge uh, wings relative to the size of its fuselage. And the basic idea was that it was it was just going to be a glider with an engine, and to just economize as much as possible on weight. Uh, and to save fuel so that you can basically get that high up where you don't have a lot of lift provided by the thinning atmosphere. And so, you know, you have basically you know, the need for these enormous wings that could compensate for that. But when you have larger surface area, you have more drag, which is reducing your ability to fly further distances. So they really had to kind of get the math right on this one. And it was... Um, it's really it's a very kind of delicate looking aircraft, kind of cool in my opinion. Uh, doesn't doesn't look very menacing, perhaps. Uh, SR seventy one definitely looks a little bit more aggressive, um, but it um, it was basically just this kind of like sailplane that would float at a very high altitude uh, and then just take pictures. Yeah, and and they didn't, um, you know, Lockheed typically contracted with um, well later on Rolls Royce. But uh, Pratt and Whitney. Uh, but I think that in, in the case of the U two, they actually went with the GE. They actually used General Electric engines. Um, that there had been something. No, that's not that's not unusual though. The GE is a big provider for a lot right, of right. Right, but uh, you know, in, like in the history of Lockheed, they um, 
had always favored Rolls Royce, Pratt and Whitney, a few others, just uh, for whatever reason. Okay. And um, they actually utilized Pratt and Whitney engines originally, and they weren't strong enough. So then they sent out the rest of the contract to GE, and GE built these um, uh, these. F one eighteen GE one hundred one engines, like these huge, you know, like huge engines that can just power these. This like really, as you said, this really skimpy plane at like uh, I don't know, like the average altitude is seventy thousand feet, basically. And when you look at it, and you look at the frame, and you and you actually read about the metallurgy, you think there's no way that this thing this thing can survive at seventy thousand feet. There's just no way. Um, when it was eventually shot down, uh, you know, I think the first major incident of it being shot down was Francis Gary Powers, right? Yeah, that's the one I'm aware of. And the the reason it was shot down was not because the planes could catch it. It was basically the Soviet development of surface-to-air missiles and their accompanying radar tracking systems had gotten so advanced that they right. could hit one of these things. So if you actually if you read about the missiles... Um, one, there's a line, there's like a throwaway line in Ben Rich's book, and he says that one uh, skunkworks engineer described the missiles as being the size of telephone poles. So they're hauling these massive missiles, just loaded with fuel, like just a giant rocket up yeah. you know, 70,000 feet in the air trying to hit this thing. Um, and that was sort of the beginning, you know, of the era of Soviet and then Russian superiority in service-to-air missiles. Russian aeronautics, particularly in service-to-air missiles, has always... They, they, they still have excellent, right. excellent missiles. Right. Uh, and this was um, this is actually one of the reasons why the stealth technology was pushed for, because there were... Um, actually, the Israelis were flying a lot of American jets in the Yom Kippur War, and they lost a third of their air force. And that was a lot uh, of Lockheed planes, and they got wiped out. In, uh, in that well, the, the Phantom was the, the main one I'm aware of, and that was a McDonnell Douglas, but I don't know um, if it was Lockheed feeling the heat or if they just sensed an opportunity. I don't know. There could have been other planes, though. Uh, it's just the, the Phantom was the Friends, one that I was wasn't aware it of. was like the Lockheed Starhawk was one of the ones involved? Starfighter, in F-104? Star I think it was the Starfighter. That, that, was their, that was the main fighter that they had produced, which is actually has an interesting history. Um, it was what um, Chuck Yeager flew and also what the German Air Force was kind of forced to buy but ended up killing a huge number of their pilots because it was, uh, oh, yeah. it, was it was designed <laughs> it killed to killed like 80 people. It, it, God, it was terrible. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, it was it, they were accusing Lockheed of bribery because of this. Oh, because well, it, they they were bribing them actually, and this this gets into the bribery scandal. We're, we're jumping over here, but. Um, what was that? The F one hundred four. Yeah. So, and between that and and the and the C five A, and um and the well, that's a, that's a good aircraft. I mean, that's a that's a transport plane. But that that came out in the seventies or, so, or maybe the sixties. But it's part of this whole yeah. the the sixties, the, the late sixties and seventies were a terrible time for Lockheed Martin, or actually, that that time was just called the Lockheed Corporation. Yeah. Um. It was a terrible time. Right, their aircraft sucked. Uh, the the TriStar had been effectively like bullied out of the market in terms of. Well, that was that was going in into the eighties. Uh, I don't know if that was. I don't think that was the sixties. I'm pretty sure. 
but uh, you know, you're you're not wrong. They were they were sort of struggling to figure it out, and I think Boeing was kicking their ass in the, the commercial. Yeah, I mean, uh, region, well, they, they so. gave up on commercial by that point, pretty much. And, right. Um, the space program had died, so they weren't selling Agena rockets anymore. Most of the space program was built on the back of uh, Rocky, uh, or sorry, Lockheed Agena rockets. Um, so the company's like falling apart. And they have they have a couple aircrafts, right? And they also have um, what was their their helicopter? The I'm totally blanking on it. The Cheyenne, yeah, the Cheyenne helicopter, something like okay. that. Okay, they had so they had like uh, honestly, it was a terrible time in terms of even their product design. Um, and this is around the time that um, Kelly Johnson is pretty old. He's about to retire, and then he does retire. He doesn't really run the show much anymore at Skunk Works. Um, and if you, re- again, if you read Ben Rich's book up to this point, you know, um, skunk works had been sort of neutered by the early seventies and that really correlates well with uh, the decline in good product output. Like there's a, there's a moment in, in like the late sixties when, um, Ben Rich and Kelly Johnson go to see Robert McNamara and pitch him on a, an experimental new aircraft design. And he doesn't even um, doesn't even listen to them. He tells them to come in during his lunch hour. Refuses to even look up at the slides that they're showing him during the during his lunch, and then asks them to leave when he's done eating. So by you know like the late '60s, early '70s, no one in Washington really wanted anything to do with Skunk Works. They didn't want anything to do with Lockheed. Um, the company was really dying on the vine. And so this. Uh, the scandal with the the C5A uh, sort of program. There's this huge scandal we can go into, um, the, but basically the gist of it was the C5A was over budget. Um, it had a lot of design flaws. It had a lot of manufacturing flaws, um, and it was sort of a classic case in sort of Lockheed political engineering in order to maintain product delivery. Uh, this was sort of the era in which Lockheed really fully became enmeshed in the you know, the U.S. government apparatus. He became fully enmeshed in Congress uh, and in, obviously, all the defense subcommittees of Congress and the Senate and the DOD. Uh, but generally, you know, uh, this this aircraft was just too, too expensive, wasn't working right, and... Um, Lockheed was finding ways to continue pushing it on Congress, finding ways to get Congress to keep buying it. So there's this whole political blowout as a result of this, and uh, Lockheed was pretty much on the ropes. It gets a bailout from the U.S. government in the early 70s, several hundred million dollars in terms of just direct cash you know, loans. Then it's also given preferential contract treatments. You know, the, the, the U.S. government was then saying, well, we'll guarantee that we'll buy a certain amount of uh, of your products from here on out, or uh, we'll finish out these these contracts. We'll, now, I'm I'm gonna out. I'm gonna make a sort of devil's advocate argument here for why that's not necessarily a bad thing, and I would all, I would say the same thing for the reason the United States bailed out Chrysler Corporation in the 70s or General Motors and Chrysler again uh, in the 2000s. Uh, you don't necessarily want your companies to to disappear uh, because there is a tremendous amount of waste uh, and talent that is basically going to be 
uh, underutilized uh, in a transition period, and it may not end up in the interests of a controlling power that you want it to be. Uh, in the particular case of um, some of these these manufacturing giants, I mean, you wouldn't want a foreign power uh, necessarily. You, you wouldn't want to need them uh, for your key technologies. And so I, uh, yeah, there's a national security case to make for even the automotive manufacturers being protected, uh, if not a, an employment case for it. Uh, but I think in the in the case of military contracting, you do want uh, a a portfolio of companies that do exist that can't compete against each other as long as they're American. Right. I think I mean, there's some rationale for this. There's yeah, there is good rationale. I mean, uh, even at this point, the SR-71s are still flying. Lockheed is still um, maintaining them, still making additions, still manufacturing them. Um, the entire uh, submarine-based ballistic missile system is basically a Lockheed creation, even still up to this point uh, in the 70s, the Polaris system, which was uh, sort of the brainchild of the Kennedy administration. Skunk Works is still doing decent work, and a lot, you know, and you're right, a lot of the U.S. defense apparatus is dependent on Lockheed Martin at that point, and dependent on Skunk Works. They're dependent on Skunk Works to find problems. Um, you know, one of the ways that Skunk Works continued to actually make money was that they were basically just a systems analyst group. Uh, the Rand Corporation sort of pioneered this and perfected it. Uh, but Lockheed, if you couldn't turn over, let's say you, you had uh, the CIA has this particular problem. They recover some kind of experimental Soviet technology. And they say, well, we can go the usual route, the official route, which is we go to the DIA. And we uh, we use our own team, and we use the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, to analyze the weapon system. Um, but what typically happened is that the CIA, if it was of uh, huge importance, would bring it to Skunk Works, or would bring it to the Rand Corporation, or sometimes both. Uh, and Skunk Works was, you know, at a certain level, was just sitting there. Um, picking through Soviet tech the CIA would steal or find and coming up with countermeasures, coming up with um, obviously detailed schematics of how it would work, testing it, sometimes rebuilding it, rebuilding Soviet technology inside their labs and actually working with it to see how it would properly function in a sort of closed environment. Uh, Lockheed was still like valuable, you're right, it was still hugely valuable. It just had gotten into this huge problem where a lot of its contracts, a lot of its major contracts were failing, um, and they were having trouble with general innovation. A lot of the innovation that was coming out of the company at that point when it was really bad in the 70s was not actually Skunk Works. It was just sort of general uh, company R&D. It was not uh, particular Skunk Works projects, which was probably, again, part of the problem, was that the suits and, at Lockheed who had uh, developed a very acrimonious relationship with um, with Skunk Works. Several on the board tried to shut Skunk Works down several times, and this made their job even harder. Like that's why Richard Kelly, uh, I'm sorry, uh, that's why Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich, uh, you know, couldn't even get a proper meeting with Robert McNamara, and couldn't even get a proper meeting with his deputies, and no one at the Air Force wanted to talk to them anymore. Uh, 
you know, their, their reputation had been sacked because they had gotten into this sort of pissing match with um, the general R&D branches of the Lockheed Corporation. And Lockheed suffered for it. When, when, the, um, when the bribery scandal came out, and the bribery scandal is kind of hilarious in hindsight, because, <laughs> um, you know, the Lockheed, after getting bailed out, realizes that um, they have they have a very limited amount of time to pay back their loans to the uh, to the federal government. The, the TriStar airliner is and uh, the C5A and the F104 are like the products are trying to sell to everyone at that point. So they go around the world. They go to Japan. They go to Germany. They go to Italy. They go to the Netherlands. They go to Turkey. To Indonesia. To Colombia. To Saudi Arabia. Um, and they do whatever it is they have to. They spend millions to make billions. That was the general idea. And it's to save the company. That's all we have to do. Um, in a weird twist of history, I know that that stupid uh, Khashoggi character was in the news recently. And it was actually, I think that man's uh, either father or uncle, Adnan Khashoggi, who was the, Saudi, uh, was the Lockheed's man in Saudi Arabia. He was sort of the guy that actually negotiated all of these deals between Lockheed, the corporation, and yeah, that Saturday that family Day. is somehow connected. I don't know the details, but I've seen that name actually on lists of very well connected people in the yeah. world. And so, when that guy got killed, there was there was something going on that we weren't told about. And they were connected; they're connected in Turkey, so they were also a part of this um, Turkish bribery scandal. And a lot of this was not known to the general public um, until uh, technically the church committee, actually. And it was discovered accidentally several years after the fact uh, and fully fleshed out several years after the fact that Lockheed had engaged in what was eventually codified in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That this is not just grease payments. This was uh, a mixture of pressure, a mixture of million-dollar buy-offs, a mixture of corporate espionage. They were committing sort of low-level corporate espionage against American corporations and allied corporations, corporations like within Europe, including the manufacturer of the Mirage, which was the the French aerospace solution to the F-104, I believe. Uh, You know, Lockheed had been been engaged in this huge international subterfuge to try and stay afloat and they didn't really even pay for it until the 90s after you know the reagan era had given them huge amounts of capital to work with reagan boom in in defense spending had sort of buoyed lockheed back up and they were able to sort of pay it off as a slap on the wrist um but they you know incidentally had created this huge firestorm inside of you know, DC political circles too. And if you read Prophets of War by William Hartung, there's two things. A, there's not a single name in sort of standard American politics, not a single name that doesn't show up in that scandal somehow. Ed Kennedy, Newt, uh, Newt Gingrich, Nixon, everyone. And this thing goes on for years. Everyone is involved somehow. Everyone is implicated somehow. It's, it's just a total disaster. Um, and two, it was actually something that almost caused uh, 
Kelly Johnson to leave on the spot. He was so disgusted, and he actually ended up leaving a couple years later anyways, but he was so disgusted when the initial stories came out about Lockheed's bribery uh, scandal that he wanted to leave the company. Because at that point, you know, from his point of view, uh, the company had abandoned Skunk Works, it had abandoned its core operational principles, and now it's engaged in international subterfuge and international bribery. And I think that, you know, it speaks to kind of the character of of Skunk Works is that this, you know, we were talking about this cohesive body that's, uh, for the most part, hand-picked. Um, if, you, if you allow that to... F- uh, to sort of go to the wayside, if you, run, if you allow it to run fallow, you're potentially losing out on the entire um, profit-making avenue for your company. If you abandon, you know, sort of what grew your company, what made it powerful, what made it a good business, in order to fulfill these sort of short-term corporate contracts order to fulfill this sort of political gaming inside of Washington that the Lockheed Corporation was um, dutifully involved in, you're going to wake up and realize that, obviously, as the the Lockheed CEO did and and as the Lockheed board did, that the company is facing bankruptcy. It's facing permanent bankruptcy. I mean, the company um, almost went into bankruptcy again in 1980. And had it not been for, you know, the Reagan winning the presidential election, and sort of the sweep of the Reagan Revolution and a huge amount of uh, groundswell for sort of conservative Democrats and Republicans in, in Congress, Lockheed very well might have gone under. There wouldn't be a Lockheed Corporation today. Um, and it was particularly like the Trident program, another submarine-based ballistic missile system program, uh, along with the, the F-117 that gave Lockheed the ability to sort of buoy back and it doubled its contracts by billions of dollars. And you know, it became sort of the company today in the Reagan era and was designing all these incredible um, aircraft and ships and electrical systems. And you know, Skunk Works was sort of revitalized in order to fulfill all this new demand. But you know, there, was a, there was a brief window where Skunk Works almost was swallowed up and uh, sort of written off. And, uh, and Lockheed almost went out of business because they kept abandoning their core principles and like they're a good business model. And they decided to play politics, play short-term revenue, and then had to bribe in millions of dollars to stay afloat. I just wanted to, to sort of weigh in on this because... What what Johnson and his team at Skunk Works were doing was was pure engineering, and that is something that only a few people are capable of, let alone allowed to do in today's world, and even back then, uh, when you are faced with budget realities and business realities that they're, frankly, probably not qualified to deal with. And I'm not saying their management was any better. Obviously, they were screwing up. Uh, but what makes a good engineer uh, does not always make a good businessman and vice versa. And I think when you have a good company, you have people at the top who realize that there are, there are distinct disciplines and they respect each other. 
and they they are obviously working together and not adversarially. Uh, but I, I do want to to mention, even though I, I'm a, a big fan of the work that they've been doing at, at Skunk Works, I think that the challenge of business is not something that an engineer can simply dismiss. It is not easy. And the fact that the company was struggling is not entirely the fault of the business people. I mean, the fact that the designers and, and engineers at Skunk Works are working on their designs uh, that may be innovative, it doesn't necessarily translate into sales. And so that's what makes it very difficult in the sort of capitalist system, not to say that the communist system was any better uh, because the stuff that they produced was arguably inferior. Uh, and the pressure that the American system put on these defense contractors arguably made made some of the innovations happen because basically people had to compete as opposed to basically getting handed guaranteed contracts uh, from the Kremlin. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that, you know, even though I'm a big fan of, of Johnson, uh, I do respect anybody who can make a business work. And I think it's, it's not always the same type of talent that you need uh, in those types of things. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, Although Hank's not here, uh, technically in the cast of this show, there's three engineers between you know you, Hank, and I. We, we do different kinds of engineering, obviously, but I think the three of us have, have agreed in the past, and you know agree to this day that um, the minute you allow people who don't understand engineering, who don't understand making things or building things or trying things, to dictate to you what exactly is to be built, it's going to suck. It's just sort of an iron law. The people who don't understand engineering, who don't even try to understand engineering, will be the worst engineering managers possible, the worst product managers possible. Well, it sort of makes me um, think about Google because Google is a company that has a lot of money because they have, for various reasons, figured out how to make advertisers choose their platform for search they don't really have uh at this point any superior search technology in my opinion uh but what they've come up with is a system that works from a business point of view and that enables them to fund uh frankly a lot of stupid ideas <laughs> that uh didn't work out so well if you look at their motorola acquisition for example um but that just goes to show you that it goes both ways i mean you can't necessarily have engineers making good business decisions uh but you do need to have that budget that enables them to have the freedom to do what they want to do and that was what page and Bryn were all about and i, I have no problem with that um I, this has nothing to do with my opinion of their sort of censorship and, pol and politics in general uh but just from an engineering point of view, it's a cool place to work at. Um, but the fact that they have effectively a monopoly on search lets them pay for all those fun projects. Um, that's usually the exception. I mean, you don't have that in most businesses. And so you typically have this acrimonious relationship between the sales oriented types and the product oriented types that just don't get along and it's it's really sad um and the real magic happens is when everything is clicking but i just wanted to you know kind of uh, try to try to emphasize that it, it is not something to be taken for granted and, and both sides are very important totally agree totally agree and do you want to you want to get into like the uh the f-117 
Just sure. Sort of, which yeah. is sort of what would really sort of, as I said, rescued Lockheed from. I, I mean, seriously, because, you know, when the Cold War ended, uh, they're pretty lucky that the Gulf War started up because I don't know what else they had in their portfolio that could have gotten them the type of military contracting respect that that plane did uh, because there just wasn't enough you know, sales to make other than sort of retrofitting the current fleets. But uh, that, that was the biggest thing that sort of occurred to me as you're talking about all these bankruptcies. I mean, aerospace is a super difficult business. I mean, as, as much as I, you know, dream about this stuff, I mean, I, I'm not crazy enough to think that I can just go out there and build a C5A Galaxy class uh, airship that can carry two M1 Abrams tanks in its belly. I mean, this stuff is hyper capital intensive. You need literal airfields to do it in. The, the manufacturing uh, facility for the 747 uh, was it may still be the largest building in the world. I mean, it's like it's super hard. It's super fucking hard. And you know, if you get the market timing wrong uh, and you don't make your loan payments, I mean, it it is difficult as hell. So I could I have mad respect for anybody who can make this business function. And then when you have like the biggest military buildup in U.S. history, and then all of a sudden the U.S. wins. And everybody's like, well, we don't really need to pay you guys anymore. And what do you do? I mean, this is actually what happened in Southern California. There were huge layoffs. And that's where Lockheed Skunk Works, at least, is based yeah, uh, in Burbank. Palmdale, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah a mix um, of Burbank and, and Palmdale over by Edwards Air Force Base. Yeah. 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 So if they, if they didn't have that plane, I mean, they didn't make that many. But it's like that really was an iconic aircraft. And it's, um, I think it probably saved the company. It was, and it was iconic. Here, here's a little story, and this goes, this is in like the mid to late 70s. Um, and this is sort of a, the, the lead up to the evolution of what was called at first the Have Blue or the Have a Blue um, project, which became the, the F 117. Um, so, you know, this is Ben Rich sort of narrating his story. And they just come back from this sort of disastrous Pentagon briefing, uh, you know, regarding sort of Soviet air capacity and, you know, the future of American air capacity. That Pentagon briefing was particularly sobering because it was one of those rare times when our side admitted to a potentially serious gap that tipped the balance against us. I had our advanced planning people noodling all kinds of fantasies, pilotless remote-controlled drone, drone tactical bombers and hypersonic aircraft that would blister past Soviet radar defenses at better than five times the speed of sound once we solved awesomely difficult technologies. I wish I could claim to have a sudden 2 a.m. revelation that made me bolt upright in bed and shout Eureka, but most of my dreams involved being chased through a maze of blind alleys by a horde of hostile accountants wielding axes and pitchforks. The truth is that an exceptional 36-year-old skunkworks mathematician and radar specialist named Dennis Overholzer decided to drop by my office one April afternoon and presented me with the Rosetta Stone breakthrough for stealth technology. The gift he handed me over a cup of decaf instant coffee would make an airplane attack so difficult to detect that it would be invulnerable against the most advanced radar systems he invented and survivable even against the most heavily defended targets in the world. Dennis had discovered this nugget deep inside a long, dense technical paper on radar, written by one of Russia's leading experts 
and published in Moscow nine years earlier. The paper was a sleeper in more ways than one, called Method of Edge Waves and Physical Theory of Diffraction. It had only been recently translated by the Air Force Foreign Technology Division from the original Russian language. The author was Pyotr Umtsev, chief scientist at the Moscow Institute of Radio Engineering. As Dennis admitted, the paper was so obtuse and impenetrable that only a nerd's nerd would have waded through it all, underlining everything. The nuggets Dennis unearthed were found near the end of its 40 pages. As he explained it, Umseft had revisited a century-old set of formulas derived by Scottish physicist James Clerk Maxwell and later refined by German electronics expert Arnold Johannes Sumerfeld. These calculations predicted the manner in which a given geometric configuration would reflect electromagnetic radiation. Umseft had taken this early work a step further. Ben, this guy has shown us how to accurately calculate radar cross-sections across the surface of the wing and the edge of the wing and put together these two calculations for an accurate tool. Dennis saw my blank stare. Radar cross-section calculations were a bunch of medieval alchemy as far as non-initiated were concerned. Making big objects appear tiny on a radar screen was probably the most complicated, frustrating, difficult part of a modern warplane designing. A radar beam is an electromagnetic field. The amount of energy reflected back from the target determines its visibility on radar. So, you know, he goes into the, the detail about how each, how almost every aircraft that they manufacture looks on radar effectively. And so he says, we desperately needed new answers. And Umseft had provided us with an industrial strength theory that had now made it possible to accurately calculate the lowest possible radar cross-section and achieve levels of stealthiness never before imagined. Umseft has shown us how to create computer software to accurately calculate the radar cross-section of a given configuration as long as it's in two dimensions. And this is basically uh, 19, you know, 1976. Um, three years later, they are test launching the Havablue, or you know, the early F-117 program. And this is when, you know, this, this kind of speaks to what Adam and I, I think, are trying to get at, is that these guys were probably some of the smartest people who have ever lived, and one of the smartest generations who ever lived inside the United States. Um, and they, you know, when they were given a task by the Pentagon, or when they felt that the country was at risk, these are the lengths they would go to, to try and find an answer, to try and do what no one else had done. They would scan everything. They would read everything. They would try and design everything. And eventually they'd come up with the solution. And they would always do it in a relatively short amount of time. And often Skunk Works was known for actually um, coming in under budget and ahead of schedule. That was um, Kelly Johnson's philosophy. That was Ben Ridge's philosophy. And Skunk Works to this day is mostly focused on under budget, ahead of schedule. The F-117 became known when the Gulf War happened. And I don't know if this was intentional. It probably was. Or if it was uh, just accidental and you're in a conflict zone and something leaks. But this is when the black... Uh, I forget what the uh, actual um, nickname of the, the bird is. It's not the black bird I want to call it. It's the Nighthawk. That's what it is. 
the Nighthawk, and I get into arguments with people about this, but I do not want to call it a fighter because it has no ability to shoot cannons or missiles at enemy aircraft. All it can do is drop bombs. So I basically call it a bomber. But colloquially, it is known as the, the stealth fighter. And even the aircraft technicians will call it that. So I don't really know anymore at this point. But uh, technically, it's designed to drop bombs. You can call it whatever you want. And what it did during the Gulf War was it flew over Baghdad through that hail of flak, which is super famous at this point uh, because they had night vision pointed at the stuff. And you can see the uh, the heat signatures of the damn uh, flak going up in the air, which looks super cool. Uh, but basically, the F-117s were flying right through that shit, and they didn't get hit once. And they had uh, 42 aircraft doing this, probably in... Um, several hundred if not thousands of sorties and they drop these big uh, bunker bunker busting bombs uh, that's kind of when those those types of bombs became famous because Saddam was known for building these thick concrete fortresses and these things were able to penetrate them and so their their job was basically to slip in at night typically because you can't see it visually as well as with radar because of the stealth technology and then they um, they basically fuck some shit up and so that's that's kind of the sort of technical achievement that they demonstrated uh, in operational terms, not just simulations or tests. Uh, this is, you know, live combat that it, it technology was proven out. And I would say this is probably the pinnacle of the U.S. military because this was coming off of the end of the, the, cold, the cold War. All of that technology, which was dumped into the Gulf War, which is a complete, you know, slaughter fest. I mean, it wasn't a fair fight at all. But all that stuff was designed to fight the Soviets, and the the Iraqis were running Soviet tech uh, for the most part. Most of their tanks were, uh, or I think, all their tanks were Soviet built, and their surface-to-air missiles were definitely Soviet built. Uh, even though Iraq was somewhat of a client uh, from the CIA's point of view of the United States during the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, the technology that Saddam had invested in, from what I know, was mostly Soviet. And so it was really yeah. was kind of like a test between American and Soviet technology. And the, and the American technology kicked its ass. I mean, it was like the M1 Abrams was going in there, kicking some butt. And the, the, the funny thing, too, was that the, the main troop deployments coming into that war were actually coming from Germany, at least the initial waves of it during Desert Shield, to, during the buildup. Uh, and they were they were all there because it was basically like at the end of the Cold War. I mean, Germany had just reunified, and they were still stationed up there. So they're flying in from Rammstein and places like that, uh, coming in, and all the the aircraft were painted in this sort of like forest green stuff that was flying into like Kuwait and like what you know. So you could see you can like tell, it was very anachronistic, you know. You can <laughs> like, tell they were they were painted for a war in the Soviet tundra. Uh, that was that right, whole. Exactly. I mean, the episode that we did on um, uh, w that Hank led on sort of Cold War nuclear politics, and we talk about you know how the Allies or NATO planned a war starting out of West Germany, and they had all of these elaborate um, camouflage mechanisms they were planning to use. And they you know the amount of time and detail. That the U.S. military spent on fucking camouflage for the Soviet tundra was insane, and you're right, and you can tell that <laughs> when the Iraq War started, 
you know, they they must have been. Well, you, you mean you mean the the Gulf War or the, the Iraq the, the War? Gulf War that, the Gulf they, War, the, the first yeah. Iraq War. I mean, they must have been laughing. I mean, thinking that we have, we don't have to repaint these planes. They're never going to be able to shoot them down. I mean, right. Lockheed, <laughs> Lockheed has a pretty good. Um, in, in sort of the war between Lockheed Corporation and and the Soviet Union, um, you know, Lockheed technology came in on top for the most part, and I would say that uh, you know it was not just it was not it was mostly Skunk Works. It was those guys at Skunk Works. It was a couple hundred guys that made that possible, but. I I um I'm not going to name the source because it's a little bit too too hot uh for lack of a better term but the the story that I heard and I believe this was a Lockheed technology was that the the soldiers in the Gulf War individual infantry soldiers were chipped uh and they were tracked by probably satellite or something. I mean, they, they literally had the ability to track individual unit deployments on the battlefield. And that was a Lockheed system that was basically, they call it like C4 ISR. It's, it's this huge command and control system. Um, and it was like the integrated battlefield. Um, anybody who's curious about that, go, go look it up. But I, I think it's, I think it's a Lockheed technology. Some kind of RFID chip or something like that? No, our RFID is, is short range. Uh, this would probably be GPS. Uh, but the, oh, okay. the sort of transponders is really the, the, the tricky part. You'd probably have, uh, you know, repeater systems that are on trucks. I mean, the soldiers are typically not going in unaccompanied, so you could have something like that. Um, although, uh, you know, the, the ability to get a, a bounce back from a sort of passive receiver, which is actually one thing they do do in RFID from an active transmitter is possible. So if they have the power source is big enough on the satellite in theory, you could do this. I actually don't know how it works, but this is just something I, I've vaguely just recalled from hearing that somewhere else. Do you know anything? I mean, I know a little bit about the tech that one of the F the F-117. It's pretty cool. Uh, one of the things that differentiates it from the SR-71 uh, is that A, it didn't use a lot of titanium. It actually was mostly aluminum. Uh, Lockheed. Yeah, I don't remember titanium being used. Uh, it has a, obviously the the skin is the one of the bigger innovations. The ram, it has the, to... the radar absorbent material. Mm, yeah, and they they coated it in in some kind of uh, additional metal alloy and then some kind of chemical composure that allows it to uh, essentially abs as it says absorb radar waves and it, it reduces the. Um, the cross section of the F-117 from somewhere to 10 centimeters to 100 centimeters. It's basically non-existent on radar. You mean like millimeters? Because I mean, that would be I mean, bigger. I'm sorry, centimeters squared. Centimeters squared. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Um, the, the basic idea behind stealth is that if you bounce a beam of... Uh, so radar is basically just a different wavelength of, of light. I mean, it's it's a... It's something you can't see, but it's basically electromagnetic radiation that it jumps out and then it, it reflects off something. So you have to have a surface that it hits before it comes back, right? And the aircraft is typically 
uh, or that radar is designed to detect the standard shapes of aircraft uh, to reflect off of them, come back, and then pick up the the signature, and then use. They often have like multiple stations that so they can sort of triangulate kind of location in real time. That has to all be integrated in a computer typically, and then shown on a display. But the basic requirement is that you have to have an object that reflects. And the way you do that most easily is you have a flat surface. Now, aircraft designers are not doing this to help radar you know, detection, so they will design it typically for aerodynamics. But the, the trick with stealth is that they figured out that if you make the, and you can see this obviously in the way that F-117 looks, if you make the body of the aircraft very angular, uh, when that beam hits it, it's not going to come straight back at you. It's going to be deflected in, in a really strange direction. And so if you have basically a surface that is covered in these very pointy surfaces and sharp angles and edges, there's not going to be a very good reflection when you send that beam out. And they, they, do, they do this in two ways. There's um, or three ways, you could argue. The first, the first line of defense is the exterior uh, surface of the aircraft. So that has this sort of very sharp angles that you would see kind of on the wings and sort of the cockpit area. Now, beyond that, you have this, this uh, radar-absorbent material or skin that is painted black, obviously for visibility, you know, the, on the visual spectrum, but also uh, it, I'm sure it has some coatings in there that radar doesn't like. And so it, it's sort of like the way black works with the visual spectrum. The reason you see black or you see a, an absence of color technically is that that particular ma uh, material is absorbing most of the light that we can see. And so basically it blacks out. So I'm sure they did the equivalent of that on the radar spectrum. Now, what they also do, which I, I'm not, I'm just assuming this, but I, from what I've heard, what I, I think they've done, because they have to, the maintenance crews on this aircraft have to do a lot of work underneath that, because there's this sort of um, packaged material underneath it that I'm assuming is an additional layer of kind of like, uh, you can think of it like an accordion. It probably has like even more angles on it. And so, and also, it's the same thing when you look at the way acoustics work. If you go into a recording studio, the walls, they have kind of like this egg carton shape. So I'm sure what they did underneath that skin, uh, and they, they used to say it was all top secret, you know, nobody can know what this is. But I think this is the rough idea, is they have even more of those kind of pointy surfaces underneath the top layer. So that top layer probably lets a little bit through, and then it probably gets smashed up underneath that top layer even more that's that's sort of my understanding of how how the technology works again you know this is the advantage of integrated systems development and to be fair to be fair to the soviets uh the soviets actually did something similar if you ever read about like the history of um any big soviet engineering project any any kind they actually um, did not purposefully, or I guess somewhat incidentally, uh, did things similar to Skunk Works from the beginning. Um, you know, the Soviet uh, idea behind uh, defense manufacturing was why would you have a, why would you have different firms? Um, B, why would you have um, differences in standards, different products? You know, what, what, what would be the point? Of, of creating yeah, it's it's less efficient right, is the sort right. of thinking now obviously 
they they didn't quite get the innovation concept uh, exactly. coming from exactly. competition. But the um, yes, you know, I build steel plant. I do it, you know, for entire country in one factory. <laughs> I mean, that's like the Soviet way of thinking. Everything is sent. But but it, but it was integrated systems development. I mean, everyone was under one roof. The metallurgist was there. The design guys were there. Yeah. The machinists were there. Everyone. Right. I mean, it wasn't too. If you, it, no, they it, they definitely had right. this sort of like everybody was sort of talking to each other, but they <laughs> they they just didn't have that sort of competitive spirit. And also, the Soviet system is very very hierarchical, and so uh, sort of stepping out of line was kind of frowned upon. And so I don't know how many people were willing to raise their hand when they had an objection, that sort of thing. Uh, I have no idea. I'm just assuming. But the the results of their sort of technology development was somewhat limited. I mean, they're, the, the true advances they've had, I think, have been in propulsion. Uh, they've had very good rocket history, uh, but actually partly because they... Uh, they were just willing to kill people because <laughs> they would just they would just like okay uh, send up you know Yvonne again because uh, the the damn thing blew up but you know his cousin can do it now and they would just they would just keep killing people to get it right um, so that 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 sort of works for you when you have a totalitarian state um, and then they they have some pretty cool thrust vectoring stuff uh, in their modern jets uh, but beyond that I mean I guess their radar. Our surface air missiles have been pretty good, but you know, I, I can't think of anything really that they've come up with that you know the Americans didn't have or you know was better, basically. Yeah, and and part of that was always like just a historical, almost limping. They, they keep in mind that the Soviets, the Russians, never had the American Gilded Age. This is something I actually wanted to touch on in the beginning, but we we immediately started geeking out on the the SR seventy one. Um, you know the 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 two brothers that actually made uh, uh, the Lockheed Corporation early on, the Lockheed Company, uh, Lukehead, that's how they spelled their name. Um, they were sort of the products of this unbelievable explosion in innovation, an unbelievable explosion in every kind of engineering, in every kind of management style. Uh, that was the Gilded Age. That was, uh, you know, this era of incredible investment in capital investment into manufacturing, into design, into chemical engineering, into aeronautics, um, into locomotives, into basic vehicles, into wheels and, and brake technology and hydraulics, like all the way down the line, all the way down the supply line. Uh, you know, the, the Russians... <laughs> Never had that. Never. Never had anything close to it. Um, so there was not, you know, 60 years of, of built-up human capital and built-up investment capital that it went into sort of the early era of the Lockheed Corporation, early American aerospace. Uh, America has always been the sort of most advanced aeronautical technology country in the world. Part of that is... You know, because of World War II and the fact that Germans were effectively taken out of the equation, and they were all taken out of the equation after World War One, um, right. and and just the Cold War budgets just fueled that industry a, a tremendous amount. I mean, the computer industry as well. So, 
as as proud as I am of some of that stuff as an American, if if there's anything left to be proud of in this country, um, some of that is just because the Pentagon paid for a ton of research. That's true. And so that's true. Yeah. That's true. But you know, again, there there's a, there's sort of um, there's an argument. I'm forgetting the the academic's name, but he's made good points about sort of the economic institutions of American capitalism and one of the big institutions was actually an era of time and that era of time was the Gilded Age. Had it not been for this just explosion in capital investment and sort of general national interest. You mean the, like the 1800s Gilded Age? Yeah, yeah. I mean the post-Civil War era to the early 1900s is a large reason why the United States it's excelled in so many realms of manufacturing and engineering hydraulics yep. steam uh well it was it was just it was just like you know all these guys that try to pitch you on their their startup to go mine asteroids i mean it was literally <laughs> an empty sort of continent that right. i mean you know obviously native americans were here but they weren't doing much with it let's just be honest uh and it was just like okay look uh lake superior great like uh the entire western half of it is covered in iron ore let's build some steel mills, let's build a railroad, let's do this. I mean, it was just like, let's develop this giant chunk of resources and land. Right. Uh, and it was astonishing. I mean, the United States was the fastest growing economy in the world for a period, and many people compare its rise to China's today. Uh, and arguably China is even more impressive. But the the development of the United States was basically a story of untapped resources and basically people just going out and grabbing it. And you could say the same thing about Russia in, in a way, because it has so many natural resources, but for various other reasons, they just didn't, didn't do it. I mean, they were basically under a very feudal system that was arguably somewhat stifling uh, in that, you know, people, were tied to their land they couldn't do anything else they had to sort of pay whatever they owed to the the lord and then they kind of had a brief period where they tried to catch up uh they built the trans-siberian railroad kind of like to match the americans but the, the siberia is just such a swamp land compared to the american west uh they had they had some pretty big actual engineering accomplishments of their own but economically it just i don't think it ever paid off um and it's um it's kind of like trying to develop the moon versus developing kind of your backyard um i'm trying to i'm just sort of spitballing as to why russia didn't develop and, and obviously they, they became communist uh you know almost immediately after they ended sort of the old feudal practices so they couldn't really have that kind of very hyper competitive capitalist system mm -hmm. that as as cruel as it is it it does force people to compete and come up with stuff and i think that's probably what they lacked for the most part compared to the united states um you know i'm sure there's more that i'm missing but i think those are the, the big things yeah i mean you know we can get kind of in the 90s here and uh yeah, skunk works becomes sort of uninteresting in the 90s um the only interesting thing in my mind that they come up with is the F-22 Raptor program really begins in the late 90s. So who did the F-35? I mean, was that like the general Lockheed company? or? Uh, my understanding is that Skunk Works was involved 
in a lot of it. Like if you if you read or if you use the source, um, the Steve Pace book, you know, there's, it's just called the Projects of Skunk Works. They are credited with having a lot of early work in the F thirty five program. So I don't re- I don't really know. I mean. Yeah. It, Obviously now it's out of their control, and you can tell because several pieces of core technology just aren't even developed at Lockheed in general. There's no way Skunk Works would be involved if it wasn't being developed there. Well, so from what I've heard, and and to be fair to the F-35, I've actually heard that it is actually a pretty damn good fighter jet. Uh, the main criticisms of it are that it costs incredible amount obviously i mean it, it is the most expensive fighter jet in history i think the the sort of total cost of ownership per unit once the the lifetime of the jet has sort of been finished is something on the order of 200 million dollars and this is not even now we're talking about way in the future once they've like streamlined everything and then that's compared to like the a4 last i looked which was and, and this is inflation adjusted by the way Ten million dollars a plane, and I don't even think it was that much. But I, I, I don't have my notes in front of me uh, on that topic. But that's one. And then two. Uh, the other question is: Is this really the jet for the twenty first century? Because you're basically putting a very expensive human pilot uh, who is, you know, an American citizen ostensibly uh, that you care about, but is also a huge investment of time and resources that is not easily replaceable. Or you could have a swarm of drones or something like that. It would cost a fraction uh, of what you'd have to put into an F-35. Uh, and then you could have um, also um, more more specialized aircraft, maybe a third reason. And this is the Pierre Spray argument that they dumped all their eggs into one basket on having one plane to solve them all. And right. they're trying to get rid of the A-10. They're trying to get rid of the F-15, and the uh, which are two fairly accomplished jets uh which one well they're trying to get rid of the the a10 the f15 the f16 and the f22 f22 well i was gonna say because that that one is uh unlike the f35 um most people actually consider that a pretty good jet no the the entire the if you the entire point of the f35 program uh was to put the f22 out of commission the f22 would be retired once the F-35 became battle operational. Um, yeah, I, I am out of my depth on this, but I, I have heard this, and I have also heard that the stealth technology on the F-22 was basically over-engineered or over-designed for 21st century, such to where older models of radar systems would be able to pick it up. I don't, I don't know, know if this is true. That. That it, it's possible. The, the only thing that I know, because I, I actually don't really know that about that particular topic, but what I've heard is that radar is typically tuned to a type of aircraft. And so you're you're kind right, of exactly. guessing what your enemy is going to be flying. So you, you adjust your radar to that. And it could be that the enemy is flying uh, a 1950s uh, fighter, and basically you wouldn't pick it up because it just has the wrong configuration. I mean, I don't think it's that simple, but I think that's that's part of what I've heard that may be what you, you're thinking of. Mm, but okay. beyond that, I, I couldn't say. Yeah, but the, the whole point, I mean, the F-22 program was effectively shelved for further development at uh, Skunk Works and at Lockheed 
because of the F-35 program. The entire point of the F-35 is to replace like you know, four or five existing aircraft models. Uh, yeah, I think that's F-22. a better way of saying it. it. It's not just the F-22, but it, it's like everything right, right. needs to go, which which is such a stupid, and, and, and stupid thing to do in general. Like you don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, this is like a, a, ch- a children's story for a reason. I don't know what <laughs> they were smoking when they decided to do this. Well, it's, it's the Swiss Army knife problem. I mean, you know, generally you want you want to be able to you're, the Air Force. I mean, this is, I'm sure, how it went down, and we're probably going to read about it in 20 years. Uh, the Air Force approached Skunk Works and approached Lockheed Martin uh, after the contract went out and said, "Okay, here's everything we need between three slightly varied models of aircraft. Here's everything we need to be doing. Okay, we need to accomplish." all of these goals uh, and we need one for each specific branch of the military by the way so it wasn't just the air force i'm, I'm wrong in that so the whole fucking dod showed up the navy yeah. the army and the air force each asked for a slightly different plane yeah off, there's off, there's off, three off, variants off the bat I mean, I'm sure that, that should have been, been shelved off the bat that should have been no we're not doing yeah. that no, yeah. no why would you do that what is the point well i'm sure what they said was they're gonna save money and st- streamline, <laughs> you know, simplify maintenance crews and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, making, you can I'm hear the sort of PowerPoint deck right presentations, I'm sure, but this is like crap that an MBA would say, but it's like, okay, would an engineer say it? Would, a, would actually a military uh, general say this? I mean, th- this and this gets to the corruption issues that people accuse the Pentagon of, is that there's a revolving door between these uh, these high offices of government and the military contractors that pay them huge salaries when they get out of government to then basically open doors for them. Yeah, what do you think Crystal City is? That whole area right next to the Pentagon. It's literally, the whole thing is, is literally just offices for former defense contractors or former military guys to continue working. To get paid a nice cushy salary to lobby. I haven't I haven't been to Crystal City, but I have driven from Dulles to the Capitol and I've seen just the the line after line after line. I mentioned this in the show before, but the line after line after line of defense contractor buildings just like literally eating at the trough. So it, it's a huge, huge, huge industry. Yeah. I mean, we can, you know, we can talk again a little bit about in the 90s. And, you know, once the the Cold War died and, uh, and the Gulf War quickly, quickly ended when uh, Saddam's army was wiped off the face of the earth, uh, no, one really knew what to, <laughs> no one really knew what to do uh, with Lockheed. Because here you have this, like, con- you have this huge complex company. Now that it has several billion dollars in outlying contracts, um, but in theory, you know, we're going our foreign policy around the world is talking about uh, peace through strength and end a military conflict. So the guys at Lockheed are thinking, um, and the guys in most of um, the defense industry are freaked out. So the '90s were known, particularly like the mid '90s, were known for this huge amount of defense industry. Congl- um, mergers uh boeing bought douglas uh, lockheed bought martin marietta 
there was a number of uh, private military contractors, security companies that were either formed or consolidated. Um, this North is of Grumman. Were, North of Grumman, correct. Um, General Dynamics ended up acquiring like a, a dozen little companies across the board. Yeah, I think they um, do submarines now. I mean, they, they're the maker of the F-16. So, I mean, just to yeah. see like the leap, you know, that they were going into to acquire uh, some sort of stability in this drawdown of spending. Right. I mean, there's um, there's actually this, a guy that's the guy that's basically responsible for a lot of the defense industry consolidation, particularly at Lockheed in the 90s, is a guy that goes or went by Norman Augustine. Uh, he's the CEO at Lockheed Martin, but he's also sort of a revolving door guy in the DOD and the, and the defense industry in general. And he actually wrote an article after he had sort of successfully consolidated the defense industry. He wrote an article uh, in the Harvard Business Review in the, the 1990, uh, 1997 issue, made June 1997 issue. And he, he makes a point and he says, um, the severity of the impact on the defense industry has been devastating, exceeding that of the great stock market crash of 1929 on the U.S. economy as a whole, when about 29% of the nation's GNP eventually disappeared. Estimates suggest that only about one quarter of the 120,000 companies that once supplied the Department of Defense still serve in that capacity. 29%? I don't think that's correct, but keep going. The others have shut down their defense lines of business or have dissolved altogether. And the surviving companies have laid off highly skilled, dedicated workers at a rate of one every 45 seconds for a number of years. A sustained rate of loss far greater than experienced in any other industry in recent times. In today's environment, defense companies seeking survival are faced with the need for self-administered surgery with no insurance, no anesthetic, and no assurance of long-term health. With such high-profile strategic alliances as the Lockheed Martin Marietta Laurel combination, and he doesn't mention that he fucking engineered that combination, and the Boeing, McDonnell, Douglas, and Raytheon Hughes acquisitions have made the front pages. The industry has been engaged in an even more fundamental transformation. Those familiar with the industry observed the unlikely has become commonplace and unthinkable almost inevitable. A satirical press release surfaced last year at the Pentagon asserting that Lockheed Martin's next acquisition would be the Air Force. When queried by a senior Department of Defense official, I assured him the press release was false. We looked into the possibility, but your present owner has too much debt on the books. Um, it's, it's really clear. There's like this, first of all, it's like a boo-hoo, why don't we get any, any more war contracts thing. But it's also triumphalism that how much they succeeded in like in taking over the entire defense apparatus in the United States. They're that you know, a huge amount of the U.S. economy is reliant at that point in the 90s. Well, that, that number of 29%, I mean, maybe that's like uh, some kind of aggregation of all the revenues of the contractors and subcontractors, but that, that's, that's ridiculous. That, that's, that. that's, that's way too much, you know, that, that's, right. I mean, come on. So, so after, um, you know, after the string of mergers, uh, here is what Lockheed Martin looked like, the new Lockheed Martin Corporation in the 90s. Uh, he says, all told, our company comprises 17 previously independent entities, General Dynamics Tactical Aircraft and Space Systems Divisions, Sanders Gould Ocean Systems, GE Aerospace, RCA Aerospace, Xerox Electrical Optical Systems, Goodyear Aerospace, Fairchild Weston, Honeywell Electro Optics, Ford Aerospace, 
Libroscope, IBM Federal Systems, Unisys Defense Systems, Lockheed, Martin Marietta, and Laurel, including LTV missiles. So, um, by, by the way, um, when you just said that word missiles, that reminds me again of our friend of the show, uh, Defense, from the Michael Douglas film Falling Down. Uh, his job was allegedly uh, at aerospace, uh, and that kind of was filmed around the time of all these mass mergers and closures, uh, especially in the Los Angeles area where a lot of these companies were based. Uh, and that's why Elon Musk based SpaceX there because of all the aerospace talent. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in there uh, since I've, heard, I've heard, been hearing his name a lot lately, probably for good reason. Hmm. And, and, you know, I want to like read off some stuff that uh, William Hartung about the Augustine character and kind of gives a bit of better insight in uh, how Lockheed really worked in the 90s. Um, so here, here we go. Not only did Lockmart as some critics call it, topped the list of Pentagon financed companies year after year. But it became the number one recipient of funds from NASA, number two in the Defense Department of Energy's, I'm sorry, the Department of Energy's list of nuclear weapons contractors, and a major supplier of goods and services to the IRS and the U.S. Postal Service. And, um, you know, he doesn't mention, by the way, that uh, Lockheed invested in uh, a company called they don't own it anymore. They owned it for many years called PAE Group or the PAE Systems Group. Um, they pretty much help staff the State Department. So there was a time for a long time in the 90s and early 2000s where the State Department was indirectly controlled by Lockheed Martin, which makes a lot of sense in, in hindsight. Um, there was a lot of uh, federal IT contracts that were fulfilled by Lockheed Martin subsidiaries at the time. Now that's obviously transitioning towards. Uh, Google and Amazon and Oracle and so on. But there was a time when Lockheed Martin was providing almost all the enterprise application software for uh, huge parts of the federal bureaucracy. Um, and you know, it goes on. And for a time during the late 1990s, firms secured contracts to provide social services in Florida, Connecticut, and California, as well as in major cities like Washington, D.C. and New York. Augustine served in the Defense Policy Advisory Committee on Trade, or DPACT, part of the acronym city of the little-known organizations that can outrank Congress and their influence over the size and shape of the budget. DPACT is described in its charter as a body formed to provide confidential guidance to the Secretary of Defense on arms export policies. Augustine also served as the chairman on the Defense Science Board, a Pentagon advisory panel that has the power to approve or reject nascent weapons programs based on their performance characteristics, and as president of the Association of the United States Army, a politically potent interest group made up of retired Army personnel and major Army contractors. So this guy serves on all of these um, quasi-governmental or governmental roles while he is CEO of the Lockheed Corporation and then CEO of the combined 17-company conglomerate later on in the 90s called Lockheed Martin. This is sort of the point where um, PNAC starts to grow, you know, the uh, project for a new American century. Um, Hartong has yeah, no no question they wanted another war. I mean, right. without a doubt. I, I mean, not, I don't want it's, it's it's incredibly. First of all, I would recommend everyone go read the you know Hartong's book. 
It's incredibly detailed, and he lays out in considerable detail Pinak's connections to Augustine, to uh, Lockheed Martin. And through this, you can also see um, the rise of InQtel, which is the CIA's um, venture capital arm. InQtel was associated in its early days with actually uh, some kind of like weird startup capital from Lockheed Martin. And Norman Augustine served on uh, its advisory board and helped build it on the ground. They were up. also involved with Google in the early days. Yeah. So Lockheed at this point, you know, in the 90s, um, because it had done so well and you know, buoyed back and you know, all these contracts, and it was fulfilling like almost all branches of the military. It was no longer just the Air Force. Almost all branches of the military had billion-dollar contracts, billion-dollar technology contracts with Lockheed Martin. Um, they were able to enact a certain amount of control. So what was originally just sort of a cog in the defense, uh, the, the industrial complex, or the, the MIC, the military industrial complex, um, was now sort of a controlling body uh, in U.S. foreign policy, a controlling interest in U.S. foreign policy. Um, and a controlling interest in U.S. domestic policy. You know, up to this point, um, there's this meme that uh, oh, corporations rule the United States and always rule the United States. Well, the, the, up to this point, you know, the military-industrial complex wasn't really interested in outright rule. The U.S. military-industrial complex would sort of finagle and cajole and low-key bribe congressmen, or would. Um, convince congressmen to create subcommittees because subcommittees don't do anything but sort of prolong the problem while you're able to continue doing what you're doing. These were like sort of subtle ways. And of course they would help staff the air force brass and help staff the army brass. Um, but it was never this sort of direct control. There was never this sort of overlap between the CEO or the board of Lockheed Martin and actual government positions active, you know, both active at the same time. Um, that's actually sort of gone away now. But you can see the mechanisms for a lot of the late Clinton and early um, W foreign policies sort of slowly growing because you have sort of an unkept control and, and sort of unrelenting control of groups like Lockheed Martin over U.S. policy. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a big company, and if you want to have a a military, I mean, arguably, you do want to have companies like this. Um, one of the biggest problems I have with our sort of defense establishment today is how much it depends on uh, foreign-born labor. Frankly, uh, that is passing a lot of that information back to their home countries, in particular in China. Uh, so I don't know if you have any comments on that, but I've heard, um, in particular at Raytheon, and I believe at Lockheed, there's been a lot of breaches where they've lost technology. It wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me. I mean, I mean, if you look at the, um, and, and you could sort of just say, oh, well, they just looked at the, the outside shape and just copied that. But if you look at the Chinese equivalent fighter, I don't remember the name of it, uh, but it's like the, the FJ. JU-36. Something like that. It, it looks yeah. almost exactly like the F-22-35. I mean, it's very, very similar airframe. And 
you know, I don't know again if this is literally just like downloading the schematics from Lockheed servers and then just putting them on a CAD machine and pumping out something that looks equivalent to that. I don't think it's that simple, but there, oh, there's the, a lot the of resemblance. J, they're the J31. Okay. So that's the F-35 knockoff. Yeah. The J-31. It just looks so similar. And this reminds <laughs> me also of the Buran space shuttle program that the Soviets designed, which looked almost like the exact same thing that wait, the wait, Americans Wait, what you're saying? This is Chinese aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the trick with, with a lot of these corporations, uh, Lockheed and Raytheon in particular, is that... Uh, when I was in university, I knew guys, okay, and they told me that there was plenty of people that they didn't think were U.S. citizens working there in technical roles. Now, depending on the project, uh, you can't have non-U.S. citizens working. There's a security clearance involved. There's a U.S. citizenship that's contingent on working. Now, not everything Lockheed does despite you know the, the meme is government contracting 80 percent or so is there at least 20 percent that isn't um and there's a lot of internal roles that aren't necessarily associated with the project that could be done but generally it's a terrible idea i think for the u.s government to allow companies like Lockheed, like raytheon to even entertain the idea of bringing in people who aren't citizens or bringing in people who haven't been background checked it's a totally ridiculous idea. Um, and I think that two things. A, going forward, you're definitely going to see a push for the relaxing of rules on citizenship and working on top secret government contracts. That's definitely going to be either a quiet or a loud push, but there will be a push. Um, and part of that will be that Majority of the people in Congress are traitors. Probably most of them have been bought off by foreign entities, so they're going to allow this to happen. Um, and the corporate, you know, these companies that are involved in these contracts are greedy, um, and they cut corners, as we've seen with this new Boeing fiasco. And uh, they don't care. They just fundamentally don't care anymore. Uh, and two, you know, this this episode has really been about two things. Skunk works about Lockheed Martin in general. There was no time when I think you go back and you look at uh, guys like uh, Kelly Johnson and you ask them, you know, would, it, would you allow someone who was a Soviet citizen five years ago to work on the U 2 or work on the SR 71? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would not allow any, you know, the, the response would have been unanimous. No. I don't care. If, yeah, if he you, might have said, uh, look States. at the Rosenbergs. I mean, right. I, I don't know exactly what the sort of uh, Russian employment percentages was back then, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be a lot less common to see that sort of thing back then. Right. The, the infusion of, of Pakistanis and, and mainland Chinese and Indians into the, you know this particular part of the American workforce is insane to me, given the relations we have, particularly with Pakistan and China. 
it's insane that Lockheed Martin would even be allowed to entertain, uh, you know, employing anyone who is of Chinese descent that doesn't have at least two generations in the United States and family. If they don't, you know, how can they be trustworthy? How do you know who these people really are? Yeah, I mean, I I think I've seen like not just like on woke capitals Twitter feed, but I think I've actually seen advertisements from Lockheed, uh, Boeing companies like this to promote the diversity ideas. And of course it's always a black woman who's standing there holding some kind of a slide rule or some technical looking piece of equipment uh, or in front of a fancy computer monitor, uh, coming up with the next God knows what, but it's, um, it's basically how the United States has lost the the 21st century, in my opinion. It's it's opened itself up, just like Rome did, to the colonies that it conquered and invited them in. And guess what? Those former colony uh, colony people or colonized peoples, I should say, uh, don't really have the same ideas that the colonizers did. Uh, for the the mother country and they they have loyalties that are elsewhere and i i don't think this ends very well i say that a lot but i i don't know it's 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 sort of it's not really a a funny thing anymore when you have companies that are dealing with nuclear technology and, and weaponry that can really wipe out cities um this isn't really a game when you're talking about stuff like that i mean if you want to have diversity at your local DMV. I mean, the biggest you know problem with that is you're going to have to stand in line a little bit longer. But the the biggest problem you're going to have when you have infiltration uh, at your defense contractors, or if you have lower quality standards at your defense contractors, as we've seen with the F-35, uh, you're going to have people die. So I think this is the difference, and I think uh, you know people, heritage Americans in particular, need to figure this out sooner rather than later if they want to salvage uh, something out of this thing when it uh, eventually implodes. Mm-hmm.